Let's pray. Lord, before we spend a couple minutes praying about how we spend our time together this morning, I want to pray for another church in our community. I want to pray for Authentic Life Fellowship and Jimmy Vaughn. Lord, I, uh, for the first time this week, had the chance to read Jimmy's story of being an orphan, uh, how he was orphaned, uh, and some of how he came to faith in Christ and what has happened in his life since then. And Lord, it is a wonderful story of your good and sovereign, providential, caring ministry toward Jimmy and indirectly now through a family and through a church family. I'm uh, thankful. I'm thankful for the chance to have um, read that. Thankful for the window into your story, into his life as a, a fellow pastor in our community. Lord, I want to pray for Jimmy that he is um, fueled by worship as he goes about his week this week. I pray that as he's preparing to stand and deliver right now, that he is uh, guided by, directed by um, awe and wonder at your goodness and your grace. I pray that that is blessing his family as he's walking in that. I pray that you're giving him a steadiness uh, about his faith and about his ministry to others. I pray, Lord, that that will fuel the so many things that he's part of in our community. Just thankful for Jimmy, especially this morning. Thankful for another church in our community that is enjoying you well, walking with you well, Authentic Life Fellowship. Lord, we want to lift them up this morning. And just thank you for all that you're doing there. I pray that you would continue and just do even more for your glory. Lord, in regards to how we spend these next few minutes, I'm um, blessed by the study. I'm surprised that it's so underdeveloped in my life. I hope this is, um, I hope that maybe I'm one of the few, but I fear that it's probably more common that most of us don't understand this as a central truth and a central gospel good news. And I'm thankful for the opportunity to enjoy it and to uh, deliver it. Um, Lord, we entrust this time to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can turn to, just to be ready... Ephesians 1, we're not going to be there for a few minutes, but if you want to have something ready. I've struggled with preachers over the years talking about what Paul said or wrote. If you're new to church and new to preaching, you may not be familiar with what I'm talking about, but if you've been around preaching for any period of time, and I would argue if you've been around preaching that's really any good for any period of time, you will hear a preacher say, well, Paul said this, Paul wrote this, Paul developed this. Now, part of that is just going to be Paul wrote a large portion of our New Testament. So if they're preaching from the New Testament, you're going to hear that name a lot. But I struggled with hearing how he was referred to. In my mind, he wasn't Jesus. In my mind, he was just another of the inspired writers of the Bible. I mean, that's pretty cool. But in my mind, he shouldn't be treated as infallible or divine. Well, things have changed for me in regards to Paul. I don't now believe that he was inf uh, infallible or anything like that, or divine. But I do believe that over the years, I've learned some things that are very important about Paul and some things that we need to consider as we continue with what we started last week, a series on union with Christ. 
Here are a few of the things that I've learned about Paul. Here's the first thing. Paul considered what he preached and wrote as from God. Here's what he said in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. He said, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, not opinion, not conjecture, conjecture, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Paul believed that what he preached and what he wrote was God-delivered, God-wrought, and was working in the lives of those who heard it. Paul, if you really read much of what he's written, you realize he doesn't make a big deal of himself, but he makes a big deal of what he preaches and what he teaches. He had a super, super high view of it and believed it came from God. I also found in studying Paul what others thought of Paul. Here's what Peter says about Paul. It's pretty funny, but pretty insightful at the same time. 2 Peter chapter 3, 15, 16, say this. Peter writes, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved bro- brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, matters regarding salvation. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Pretty funny. You just hear Peter just kind of almost hear him audibly scratching his head going, Paul, what in the world are you saying? There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. I'm going to read that last part again because I want you to hear that. There are some things in them, in Paul's writings, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Here's what's really important about what Paul preached and what he taught. First of all, he had a really high view of it. He believed it came from God. And secondly, Peter gives us some New Testament evidence that by the time of the writing of 2 Peter, the other apostles considered Paul's writings on par with Old Testament Scripture. That's massive. Paul's still living. Paul's still writing. And Peter's saying, listen to, read Paul's writings as if they come from God, because they do. Massive, massive stuff in those two things. And then again, it's kind of funny that Peter considered what Paul wrote sometimes hard to understand. I can identify with Peter. Paul, the reason things came from him were so important and so profound is he was an apostle. And the role of an apostle is to convey and explain the life and teachings of Jesus. Here's what Richard Gaffin wrote about Paul. Richard Gaffin is a guy I mentioned last week. He's written a couple of books on union with Christ. One of them I've tackled almost completely. The other I've read some excerpts from. But this is a a little uh, comment that comes from him regarding Paul's role. It says, an apostle of Christ is someone uniquely authorized by the exalted Christ to speak authoritatively for him. In this regard, and only in this regard, the apostle is as Christ himself. When the apostle preaches and the apostle teaches, it is as if Christ was teaching. That's why reading Paul 
would be like reading Jesus. Paul's not Jesus. That's why I've changed and moved in my view of Paul, where I can understand and appreciate. And in fact, I want to hear from my preacher, Paul said this. What I try and say when I refer to things like that is God said through Paul this. Now, if Paul's take on things is so important, it's important to ask the question, then what is Paul saying? It's a great question. Okay, If Paul's thoughts are so profound and his insights are so insightful and he's written so much of our New Testament, then what is his central teaching? 1 Corinthians 15 was our last dose of that, I think, last week. If you want to turn there, you can. I know I told you to go ahead and turn to Ephesians 1. But if you'd like to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, you can or you can just listen. What I would really encourage you to do is if you weren't here last week or you haven't listened to last week's message, I cannot overemphasize how important that would be. For those of you that did, you know how important this passage was that we considered last week. For those of you who haven't, you have tomorrow, and you have this coming week. You have the, line, the, the library online, and there's likely a hard copy sitting out there on the table. I don't know if those have been produced yet, but you need to listen to last week. You want to get at the heart of what Paul is teaching and saying about the gospel, about the good news. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Last week we considered a football and said, let's keep our eye on the football, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. I passed you the football, and you are being saved if you hold fast to that football that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, here's the football, as a first importance, what I also received, really three things, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, secondly, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then Paul goes into a bunch of evidence for His resurrection. Paul has a very simple message. If you want to try and figure out what Paul's, the heart of Paul's message is, this is a great place to go. Christ was crucified, bearing and caring for, tending to your sins. He was buried and he's risen. And there's tons of proof for his resurrection. There's no more proven. I shouldn't say this. No, I can't say proven. There's no ancient event in history that has more evidence proving that Christ was risen than his resurrection. No other event in ancient history. Okay? Now, those three things are central to Paul's teaching. He died, he was raised, uh, he, was died, he, he died, he was buried, and he was raised. And then he gives tons of evidence for the resurrection. And then he develops an argument for our relationship to Christ in his resurrection. So if somebody wants to get at really the meat and the marrow of Paul's teaching, you have to go to Christ was crucified, Christ was buried, Christ was risen, and we are united to him in that resurrection. That is the central good news of Paul's teaching. It's about union with Christ. The, the thing that we considered last week that was really so wonderful in this development in the rest of this chapter, especially verses 12 through 28, was the realization that Paul uses Christ's resurrection almost interchangeably with our resurrection. And in fact, if he says, he says that if Christ was not risen, then we're not going to be risen. 
And he ends with the proven fact that Christ is risen, in fact, so our resurrection is sure. We are so interchangeably or inter-involved, interpenetrating, connected with Christ that he develops the argument either way. He flips it negatively and he flips it positively and, and does it interchangeably. That's the good news of Paul's message is that our union with Christ, especially in the resurrection, is central. I thought I would ask for um, something a little bit different in a sermon at this point. If, any, if anything, it'll, it'll kind of stir you if, you if you're getting sleepy. Um, I won't, I'd like to see, which would be weird to ask for in a sermon, but it'll be okay. We can handle it. A show of hands from any of you who have ever heard a sermon before being here in the last couple of weeks on union with Christ. Okay, there's one. Show me a hand where I can see it. If, if you're raising it, okay, two, three, four, five. Okay, five. There may be 180, 200 people in here. You, know, you haven't counted? Just, that's your job. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's not your job, Cody. But think about that for a minute. If this is Paul's central teaching... Christ crucified, Christ buried, Christ risen, and our union to him, with him, in the resurrection. If that's the meat and the marrow of his teaching, don't you think that more of his Christians should have heard a message about that by now? I mean, I I was wondering if I'm the only person that wasn't paying attention for, I don't know, decades worth of preaching. I'm not being ugly toward my preachers that I sat under for years. I'm, I'm trusting that God, and I know God used those. I'm thankful for what I heard growing up, but I'm sitting here looking at this is such a simple and central truth to the gospel, uh, of the gospel, and going, why haven't I heard this before now? Why wasn't this really developed more in seminary? Why wasn't this developed more in my church? If this is the meat and the marrow of the good news, it's something that I really think that we should spend some time on. Don't you reckon? Don't you? I hope so. Five hands in a room of 179 people. That's what I counted. <laughs> proves to me that it's important. We bumped into it in Ephesians 2 just a few weeks ago. In Ephesians 2, we were introduced to some prepositions and some words that gave us a sense that something important and profound was happening with Christ. This passage, verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians 2, we considered last, I mentioned it last week, and we considered it in depth before December, is I think in some ways some of the most, some of the most concise, beautiful passages of Scripture that, to, that develop the, the balanced gospel in our Bible in 10 verses. And in those 10 verses, there are some things that are developed that we are raised together with Christ, that we are made alive together with Christ, and that we are seated with Christ, the emphasis being on with Christ, and that all things are accomplished, all these things are accomplished in him, those are some of the things that we learned in these last few weeks as we considered union with Christ, is that we are with Christ, made alive together with him, raised with him, seated with him, and that we are in Christ, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we're going to consider in these next few weeks what it means to be in Christ. We're going to consider what it means to be with Christ. We're also going to consider what it means to be for Christ to be in us and we're going to consider what it means for us to be like Christ. Four different aspects of union with Christ. And I want to confess to you it's a little bit wooden. 
a little bit wooden and unnatural to break it down this way. I would rather just go to a single passage and unpack it and then just sort of develop this flow for us, this understanding of union with Christ. But I think what I've been thinking about is if we're going to learn how to skate, then we have to just try and figure out how to get around the rink without falling down first. The triple sow cow will be later. All right, we're not going to do a triple Lindy if for, if you, for others of you that know your movies. But the triple sow cow, we're not going to do in the first week. So we're going to try and get around the rink between last week and this week without falling. We're going to take a good look at these in the next few weeks. What we're going to spend our time on this morning, though, is we're going to spend the first of two Sundays considering what it means to be in Christ. Okay? The first thing we're going to consider is we are in Christ before his earthly life. That's the first of two things we're going to consider this morning. We are in Christ before his earthly life. Now, now for Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, he's about to give a list of spiritual blessings. We know this, if those of you have been around for a little bit, because we started in Ephesians 1, and we worked through this passage. But let's look at it. Let's look at this first spiritual blessing that he communicates here. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. The beauty of this passage here and this thought of being in union with Christ is this thing that's de- or this truth that's developed is that we were chosen before the foundation of the world We were predestined for adoption through him. That choice that God made to um, before the foundation of the world was that we would be in him. Pay attention to those two words in that passage in verse 4. That we would be chosen in him. And then in verse 5, he predestined us for adoption through him. And then in verse 6, we're blessed in him. The first spiritual blessing that Paul develops in this church, in this letter that he's written to the Ephesian church, is the reality of being chosen in Christ, united to Christ, before the foundation of the world. Here's what's being said here. Don't miss it. Don't let any sort of gymnastics uh, take you away from what's really being, and, and, I'm, and I'm talking figurative gymnastics, and just like in your mind. Don't let them take you away from what's being said right here. God's choice of some people to be in his son, united to his son, happened before the world was created. That's what's being communicated right here. All the gymnastics in the world can't get away from what's being communicated right there. That God chose before he said, let there be light. He chose some people to be in. In his son, it says in him, united to his son before the world was created. Before he said, let there be light, he had a mind to make some people his own. Chosen in Christ and united to Christ. 
I wanted to sort of personalize this. I wanted to really connect to this a little bit. So I just wanted to kind of think about some important historical events. You start with the day of our birth. That's an important day for all of us. We all celebrate our own birthday. Of course, that's a given. And I can say this, however old you are, before the day of your birth, before American Idol started in 2001, can you believe that's when it started? Before cell phones were commercially available in 1983, okay, did you know that they were around that long? When, when Christy, when we were waiting for Evan to be born, I carried around a beeper. So even as of, that was 1997. So 1997, everybody didn't have cell phones. I had a beeper sitting in chemistry class ready to hear the news. I'm in labor. Cell phones haven't been around that long. I don't know why I got on a cell phone tangent. Before the world wars, before the world wars, before the airplane was invented, before the signing of the Constitution, before the printing press was invented, before the Western Hemisphere was discovered, before the assassination of Julius Caesar, before the crucifixion of Christ even, before a starry night in Bethlehem when the God the Son was born, before the most important events in history, your union with Christ was planned, it was ordained, and it was decided. That might be completely new news for you, but it's right there in Ephesians chapter 1. And it's part of Paul's good news. Union with Christ in him before the foundation of the world. Here's a quote from a guy named Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology. I'm quoting his text. Since we did not exist before the foundation of the world, these verses indicate that God, looking into the future, knowing that we would exist, thought of us being in special relationship with Christ. He did not first choose us and later decide to relate us to Christ. Rather, while choosing us, he at the same time thought about us as belonging to Christ in a special way as being in Christ. And all that happened before the world was created. I was trying to personalize this a little bit more and even thinking through what this would be like. If your parents made a special meal for you and asked you to attend and brush your teeth and brush your hair and wear something decent, you might expect that something significant is going to happen at that meal. Mom and dad sit you down to a wonderful meal that they've prepared. You're clean shaven. Your hair's parted. You're well-groomed. You're ready to hear the good news. And there over a wonderful meal, they share with you that plans were made for you before your birth. That special accommodations were made for you before you were even born. Now, I know all of us don't have access to that kind of information or that kind of parent planning but I can imagine how that might hit you. If you were to hear that, you might feel a little sense of stability knowing that you were planned for, knowing that there was something accounted for before you were even born. You might even feel a little bit more secure in who you are. You might even delight that you weren't a surprise, that you weren't a bother, that you weren't an inconvenience, that you weren't an afterthought, but you were planned for. You might even imagine that your footing might just feel a tad more secure knowing that before you took a breath, you were loved, you were considered, and you were planned for, even the beneficiary of some wonderful arrangements. 
I can't imagine that wouldn't hit you and give you some roots as you then left that nice meal with mom and dad. It seems that Paul wanted the Ephesians to have this. It's like they sat down at a great meal and he gave them this big picture. He points out to them the reality that God has done something very profound for them before they were ever even born. He's going to deal with some really practical matters later, like how to be a parent and a child and how to be a husband and a wife and how to do church. But right here, he deals with some important foundational stuff, taking them to some wonderful realities that God had good plans for them as they were chosen in Christ, united to him already before he even said, let there be light. Now, Every time I deal with a passage or a truth like this, I, I want to spend a little time developing it because I know it's hitting ears that may not receive this and enjoy this completely, some ears. I want to just show a few examples first. God's done this before. This isn't a new thing. He's not doing something altogether strange and weird just because it may be unfamiliar to you because it's happened all over our Bibles. Here's what he said to Jeremiah. He said, before I formed you in the womb, Jeremiah, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations, Jeremiah, before you ever even took breath. That last part was mine. It's not text. Here's what happened with Jacob in Genesis chapter 25. Isaac prays for Rebekah. Rebekah's barren. She hadn't had any kids yet. Isaac prays for Rebekah. Rebekah then gets pregnant with twins, and they're fighting within her womb. And she's like, God, what in the world is happening to me? Why is this happening to me? She prayed. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. I thought I had two babies in my womb. No, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. Wow, that sounds like some sort of pre-planning going on there. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. It was ordained, it was planned before they were even conceived. This isn't a new idea. It's not a new thought. However strange it may be for the modern Western mind, It's all over our Bibles. It's even celebrated by our people that are writing these things. Here's what David said in Psalm 139. He said, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that you, or the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. I hadn't even been thunk of. And yet you had already ordained my days. He did it with Samson. Plans were worked out and ordained for a boy to be born to a barren woman, and he would be a Nazarite and a judge to Israel. Over the years, as I've considered passages like this, and I've considered myself why years ago it was such an affront to me, I tried to figure out why in the world was this so hard for me to receive? Am I a modern American or something? Or what is it in me that makes this notion of some sort of predestination and pre-planning so unsavory? To me, and I thought, man, maybe it goes back to my high school graduation gift. In high school, when I graduated, I got like 12 cross pin sets. Anybody else get any cross pins? You know, they're so hard to write with because they kind of slip. You press down and they're just slick. They look nice, but they don't write well. And I got this little plaque that had this poem on it called Invictus. 
I can't remember who gave it to me. I, my parents surely wouldn't have given this to me. But some of you know the poem I'm talking about, Invictus. Invictus. I think I've read Invictus before in a sermon, maybe a couple times before, because I think it just so beautifully captures the modern American mind, the modern American view on life. Invictus. I'm going to read it to you. Some of you may be hearing it for the first time, so I'm going to, but I'm going to read it. It's good. I'm telling you, when I read it in high school, I was like, Ugh, yeah, I like this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. Yeah, that's not all of it. It gets better. Uh, he's like, uh. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. Man, I read that in high school, and I was like, oh, I'm going to put that somewhere. I don't, know, I don't know what happened to the plaque. I don't know if I actually put that up. But it spoke to me in the moment. But, you know, here's a little background behind this poem, Invictus. It was written by a guy named William, William Ernest Henley. It's one of his only noteworthy poems. I mean, it's like the only thing that he's known for. I don't know if anybody else has ever read, written anything else he's ever written or read anything else he's ever written. But that's one thing. He's like a one-hit wonder on, in terms of poems, okay? He's a one-trick pony when it comes to poems. And what's interesting about this, he wrote this after he had some complications from tuberculosis and lost one of his legs. Okay, He was going to lose the other one too, but he found a doctor, a different doctor, that said, no, I'm not going to cut that leg off. I'm going to do some different surgeries so you'll, you'll at least have that one leg. And I'm just envisioning this guy riding Invictus, and it made me think of, of Monty Python, <laughs> the Black Knight, I mean, right? Has anybody seen Monty Python on the Black Knight? I mean, you got it. If you haven't, you got to see it. The guy loses his arm. It's just a flesh wound. I've had worse. You know, he loses his other arm. I've had worse. You know, you've been beaten. And he's, I mean, he's convinced that he's won. And I'm reading this going, this guy, this William Ernest Henley is, I mean, it's noble to sort of be, have, be so confident about being the captain of your own soul. But you know what happened to him in 1903? He croaked. He died. I mean, does anybody else see the irony in this? The guy that wrote this isn't alive. He was defeated by death. He lost a leg. He could have lost another. I mean, I'm one for, I enjoy those human victory kind of stories. And I like the thought of a guy that can just really push on in the face of adversity. But I think this guy really, in some strange way, captures the American spirit, modern American spirit, that, man, I got this thing. I got this thing, and I can handle it. And we've got to enjoy the irony. The guy that wrote this croaked. Captain of your own soul. I, you know, what's something that's interesting, too? You know who read this at their uh, execution? In total, Timothy, Timothy McVeigh. My God, Timothy, how'd that work out for you? 
captain of your own soul. Really? I mean, seriously, I don't know that he was electrocuted, but he was executed. The irony there has got to strike us that the modern American or modern human being, for that matter, is thinking this way when the reality is you're going to be defeated eventually. You might manage to keep a leg. Good on you. But you're going to croak. You need something or something that's bigger than you, something that's some other captain by all means other than your own captain over your own soul. I don't know why that. Maybe this is why the modern American finds it so repulsive that someone else would ordain and plan our days because we want to be the captain and we want to be in charge. But it's all over our Bibles whether you like it or not. You see it in Moses' story, you see it in Samuel's story, you see it in John the Baptist's story. Before they ever even took breath, God had special plans for them. And this is the good news. Um, Welcome to the American mind or not. This is the good news, that God has amazing stories of great plans for folks before they're even born. And that's your story too. That is the good news. That their stories are yours and your stories are theirs. For God chose you and united you to his son before you ever did anything good or bad. Oh, in the words of Jerry Clower, oh, yes, Lord. Because if it's based on what I did good or bad, I'm done. Anybody else? If it's based on performance, the room clears. I hope. Anybody that's sitting in here, it needs to clear because you're too proud to, to, to reap anything. And you're wrong. And a liar. <laughs> right? Come on. How? Oh. Mm. It wasn't based on merit. It wasn't based on anything other than his good and sovereign plan and the counsel of his own will, he says there in Ephesians chapter 1. Mm. Man, he did this, all this, even before a starry night in Bethlehem. We are, notice I say present tense, we are in Christ before his earthly life. The second thing, we are in Christ during his earthly life. There's just two things we're going to develop here. Just two, but they're so good. Here's the first. Turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. The other, if you want to have your your Bible ready, is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Just two things, and they're so rich and so good. Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. I want to encourage you as you read Romans, if you're one that has read Romans before, or in the process of reading Romans, read Romans looking for union with Christ. If you can believe for a moment, maybe for the first time, that wait a second, maybe Paul's central message is union with Christ, let me read that way. Let me think that way as I'm reading Romans. So listen to these passages now thinking about union with Christ, having this on your mind. Verses 18 and 19 of chapter 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men... So one act of righteousness leads to, uh, leads to justification in life for all men. He's like looking at two different sides 
of things here. Two different events, two different men and two different outcomes. A, one trespass leads to condemnation for all men. He's about to tell you who he's talking about here in a minute. B, one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Now back to A, for as, the one man's, as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Right there, that's A. And who do you think he's talking about? Adam. Okay. And then the 19B, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, let's consider here for a moment what he's saying. What he's saying here is that through one man's sin and our union with him, Adam, all are condemned already before you were even born. Through one man's sin, you stand condemned already. You might think, well, that's kind of unfair. But then look at that second part of verse 18 and the second part of verse 19. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That's speaking of Christ and his work. Through one man's righteousness and our union with him will be life. See, what's being developed here in these two passages is the reality that there's corporate guilt by our union with Adam, but corporate righteousness, for those of you that think that's really unfair, there's corporate righteousness by our union with Christ. That's unfair. (laughs) We want to talk about what's fair. That's unfair. That I'm going to somehow, by union with Christ, experience his righteousness. Now, here's the reality. Though you weren't in the garden... I believe in a very literal Adam and Eve. I believe in a literal fall where there's a literal piece of fruit taken by Eve and passed to Adam and chomped down and chewed on and swallowed. I believe what it says there literally. Though I wasn't there, though you weren't there, by our union with Adam, his trespass counted as ours. That's what union means. To be in union with Adam means that his trespass counts as yours. Now, frankly, I don't need Adam to be guilty. I've got plenty of my own sin of my own. Anybody else? But even if somehow we had managed to be kind of squeaky clean, just by our union with Adam, we would be guilty. David says, from before conception. That's a hard notion for folks right there. Here's what he says. Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Mom wasn't cheating on dad. He's just talking about he's just born into sin because of his union with Adam. Man, that's a human, human-wide problem. Though you weren't in the, in the garden, you, by your union with Adam are guilty if you're in union with Adam. Now, here's the flip side of what's being developed there. Though you weren't in the wilderness resisting the temptation of the devil, faithfully, flawlessly, hungry, starving, thirsty, though you weren't in the wilderness resisting the devil perfectly, though you weren't in the garden praying, not my will but yours, Father, though you didn't submit like a sheep before shearers to spit, to scourging, to a cross, his righteousness is counted as 
yours as if you did it. Man. Right? Man, that gives me some goosebumps right there. I ain't lying. I'm standing up here with big, I'm surprised you can't even see them because they feel like it's sticking all the way out of here. I can't even believe that. By my union with Christ, by faith, all those things that he did are counted as mine and yours. His obedience is counted as ours, though we weren't there and though we weren't even alive. What great news. Somehow God was mindful of us in Christ's life because by our union with him, he became our representative. We're no longer in Adam. We're now in the new Adam, the final Adam, the better Adam, Christ. And his righteousness is applied as ours for those who are in union with Christ by faith. That's the first thing right there. We are clothed in his righteousness by our union with him. Now, here's the second thing. This passage I told you to turn to, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. 2 Corinthians 5, 20. I like your pages turning because I want you to see it. I want you to know it's not conjecture. We're not just kind of coming up with some opinions. We're reading right from passages that are very clear about what they're saying. Chapter 5, verse 20 of 2 Corinthians says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now this is what he says in the next verse. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, those united to him by faith, in him we might become the righteousness of God. We got this thing that we develop. We have this thing. Excuse me. I want to use good English. We've got English teachers in here. We have this thing that, that, that Christ has accomplished for us, this alien righteousness that we're wearing, this clothing that he earned by our union with him. We're now um, in union or we're participating in his righteousness. God thinks of us as if we accomplished what he accomplished. Okay. Now, on the flip side, our sins committed now, okay, the sins committed now, in our lifetimes, now, were placed in and on Christ in his lifetime. His righteousness is reckoned as ours, and our sins now were placed on him. God thought of our condition and our sin, and our desperate lot, while he heard the words from his own son, why have you forsaken me? He thought about our sins, your sins, for those who are in Christ, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And here's the scandal. Our sin was counted as his. That's the way this thing plays out. Our sin was counted as his. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Our sin was counted as his. Man, let that hit you for a minute. That's not the only place where it tells us that, where we learn that. Isaiah chapter 53, what should likely, hopefully, be a familiar passage to you. In verse 5, says he was pierced for our transgressions. Those we commit now, he was pierced 
then. Now, this was written 700 years before Christ, but it's in regards to what Christ is going to accomplish. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So God laid on us his righteousness and he laid on him our sin because of our union with Christ. Man, if that doesn't just make your heart glad, then you're not paying attention. That is some seriously good medicine right there. Though at this point in time, when Christ lived, we hadn't even yet committed these sins. God knew about our sins, and for those who are in Christ, he placed them on Christ. They were on the cross at noon on Friday 2,000 years ago. That's stuff that you carry around. That's stuff that rears its ugly head at times, and you think about what you've done. He bore it at noon on Friday 2,000 years ago. God put it there, not in part, but the whole. This is what I want to develop in the second part of this sermon, that he thought of Christ's sinlessness being ours. And he thought of our sinfulness being Christ. Man, somebody wants to know what the good news is, the good news that we walk in. It's not performance. It's not being a good boy or good girl. This is the reality of it. This is the central thought of our gospel, Paul's gospel. He thought of Christ's sinlessness being ours and our sinfulness being his. I was thinking about it, though, it's familiar. Just like these other examples that we looked at where God did something before someone was ever even born, there are plenty of other examples of God doing this throughout our Bible. My favorite, I'm going to take you to my favorite. It's the last place I'm going to have you turn this morning, but it'll be a good one. Genesis chapter 48. It's a near and dear one to me. I don't know why, I just enjoy it. Maybe because I'm not the oldest, the oldest son. It's a little jab at my older brother. Not a real one, just kind of a half-hearted, joking jab. Turn to Genesis chapter 48. God's done this thing before. You know there's a, a, a very important theological term for what we're talking about here. I mean, there are whole seminary courses on this theological term. The term is a divine switcheroo. There's really not a theological course on that, but that what he's doing here is a divine switcheroo. So you can look for the divine switcheroo in other places and see that it's all over our Bibles. Here's my favorite. And I'm going to mention some of the others, but this is my favorite. Genesis chapter 48. After this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. Let me give you a little bit of context. Joseph's father, Joseph is one of the brothers that was, he was beaten, sold into slavery and went off into Egypt. And all the brothers told dad, Jacob, who's now renamed Israel, that uh, the son was killed by wild animals or something. They bring him his, his robe and it's got a bunch of blood on it. And Jacob mourns for him, and Jacob thinks he's dead all these years. Turns out he's been in Egypt, and God made a way for his family and for the nation of Israel to survive through this whole terrible story. Okay, so by this point, we fast forward, and Jacob, or i.e. Israel, and the rest of his family has now moved to Egypt to survive famine. 
Okay, and Jacob is old as dirt. Like he's ready to go on and be with the Lord, but he's going to bless all his boys beforehand. Now, instead of blessing Joseph, he's going to bless Joseph's sons, Ephraim. Some people say Ephraim or something. I like it's like Ephraim. It sounds kind of southern, you know. It's going to be a good name for your boy. Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh are his two boys. Okay? Though, though these are Jacob or Israel's grandsons, he's going to treat them as his own sons, and he's going to bless them as if they're his own sons. So watch how this goes down. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. And then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. He's ready to die. He's old. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. I'm going to count them like my boys. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are, as some of my other boys are. And the children that you fathered after them, well, they can be yours. But I'm going to count these boys as mine. They shall be called the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. When there, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? See, you know Israel's really old because he's already forgotten what, what they're even there for. Like, what are those, this is all about? He, like, come on back, come on back, Jacob. Come on back, Israel. Remember, this is Ephraim and Manasseh. You were just talking about them a minute ago. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, okay. So he says, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, these are my sons, Dad, um, whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now, the eyes of Israel were dim. I don't know if that's sort of explanatory or something about what's about to go down. They were dim with age so that he could not see. He may not have been, to see with his, may not have been able to see with his physical eyes, but he could see with something else. Something else was going on here that was profound. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. For some of you granddads that kiss your grandkids, and the grandkids are thinking, no, I hate it when granddads, that's okay. It's granddad doing this. Granddad's kissing and embracing his grand, grandkid, big slobbery kiss. And Israel says to Joseph, I never expected to even see your face. I thought, I mean, you could just interject all kind of information here. I thought you were dead. I had that coat, that robe that I had made for you that had blood all over it. And I mourned you for years. I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see not only your face, but your offspring also. What a glorious moment this must have been. And then Joseph removed them from his knees. He's got Ephraim and Manasseh. And he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand. Now, the reason he did that is because the oldest, Manasseh, is due the blessing, and the blessing goes in the granddad's right hand. If it's to go down the way it's supposed to go down, the way nature is going to recommend, the way things would seem to traditionally unfold, then Manasseh is going to be under Israel's right hand, and Ephraim is going to be under um, Israel's left hand. Okay, and that's the, way Jacob present, that's the way Joseph presents them. He's going to help his old blind dad out. 
Okay, that's kind of cool. That's thoughtful. So let's see what happens. So he brings him in. He's got Manasseh uh, under his left hand, so he'll be in Jacob's right hand. And he's got Ephraim under his left hand, so he'll be, or the other way around. You, you got the point. In verse 14, Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the hand of Ephraim. He did a little switcheroo there. Watch what he does. He stuck out his right hand and he laid it on the hand of Ephraim, who was the younger, and he sticks out his left hand and lays it on the hand of Manasseh, on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. For Manasseh was the firstborn, and he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let, the, let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. This ain't the way things are supposed to work. There's a little switcheroo going on here. It must be because my dad's old and blind. And he took his father hand, father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son. I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. God is about the work of doing the divine switcheroo all over our Bibles. That's just an example that I really enjoy, and it's one that's initiated by a guy named Jacob who did the very same thing if you know Jacob's story. It's as if his dad did the divine switcheroo on him because his eyes were blind, and he couldn't make out who's Jacob and who's Esau, so Jacob shows up wearing literally... Esau. He shows up wearing literally Esau's clothing, his aroma, the fake fur on his arms, and he gets the blessing. That's the good news that we get. Beautifully illustrated. We're wearing the older brother's righteous clothing. The blessing was due him, and it was placed on our head. You see that beauty, that scandal? Like, are you kidding? Man, that's good news. It's happened all over our Bible. We were reading as a family, minus Daniel. He was spending the night last night at a friend's house. But we were reading, Christy was reading Genesis, and we were just sitting as a family. We are going to try and read through the Bible this year. What plan are we following? She reads truth. I'm, I'm secure in my manliness to read that. <laughs> I can handle that. Can you? I mean, uh, she reads truth. It's still the same truth. I, just, I know I'm not a she. The... But I encourage you, as a little interjection, pick out a Bible reading plan and do it. She Reads Truth would be fine if you're secure enough. <laughs> so we're reading She Reads Truth, and um, I'm thinking about examples of where God did a divine switcheroo, and I'm, I'm asking the kids afterward and Christy for their thoughts of some examples, and Luke just shot out, well, Cain and Abel are a great example. We just read about them. Cain's the oldest, but he didn't get a blessing. They actually thought when Cain was born, Eve thought, I've gotten myself the God-man that's going to restore us to the garden. We just got evicted, and this is going to be the solution. So sweet, here he is. Turns out he's not the one that gets the blessing. He gets a curse, and the righteous brother is more righteous in his own death than Cain was in his own life. The examples are all over our Bibles. 
Jephthah, one of the judges of Israel, he's the son of a prostitute. And he's picked over his brothers to be judge over Israel. David and Jonathan. David is chosen to be king over the rightful man, Jonathan. David is chosen over his older brothers to be the king. There are examples all over our Bibles. The prodigal son. The beautiful story of the prodigal son is a reality that this, this prodigal that runs off and spends all of dad's money squanders all these blessings that were given him. This guy gets a celebration in his feast while the older brother just kind of sits there and goes, hey man, I was always here. This is not a new story. This whole thing is so familiar where the undeserving are blessed with the older brother's blessing. That's the good news of our gospel. For somebody that says, man, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means walking in that truth. Hopefully being a good boy or good girl is a byproduct, but that's not what achieves this. That's why we don't have to ride this roller coaster of he loves me, he loves me not. I had a bad day today, so I guess I'm out. I've been a good Christian today. I, that ick threw some my car and I didn't cuss at that guy that cut me off. So listen to Christian music. Go Jesus, I'm going, I'm in. We don't ride that roller coaster because our faith is not based on that. It's based on these sort of realities. That he took the blessing that was to be placed on the older brother and placed it on the younger undeserving brother. He's done it all over our Bible. The divine switcheroo is our good news. Man, somebody wants to know what, what your good news is? That's our good news. God did a divine switcheroo with you and his son and placed his righteousness on us and our sin on him. We got the blessing and he got the curse of paying for our sins. And this union was already determined and already accomplished before you were even born. Man, I hope this adds some gravity to your faith. I don't have a little to-do list for you to walk away with this week. Okay, here's the real practical ways to walk in this because ideally you're just so stirred and just so overwhelmed with awe and wonder and marvel that it makes you want to be a better husband <laughs> or makes you want to be a better father. It makes you want to read your Bible because it's like, oh, there's some good stuff in there. I need it. It makes you want to sing true things about God back to God. It makes you want to encourage one another with things that are true about this gospel that we're walking in. Hopefully, we don't need a to-do list because we've been so overwhelmed with this good news of what it means to be in union with Christ. That God would work something so grand for us before we were even born knowing all the while that we don't, didn't, and ever will deserve it. He's a much better captain over my soul and our souls than we are. Let me pray. God, I'm so thankful for you as captain. I put you in the, in the we put you in the captain's seat. We enjoy that you are there. Um, we enjoy that you do great and scandalous things in the gospel. God, I'm thankful right now that there are folks in this room this morning that are hearing the gospel and have heard the gospel maybe this morning in a whole new way. And God, I pray that it will be something that the Spirit will use to lead to more questions, that, they, that those who heard this won't be able to sleep tonight without getting some questions answered and some issues reconciled 
God, this good news is too good, too good to pass up. And God, I pray that those from those who've been hearing this and known this for decades to those that may be hearing it for the first time, that we together can truly enjoy it, the scandal of it, the beauty of it, the wonder of it this morning. God, I'm thankful. I'm thankful our preaching is not in vain. I'm thankful our faith is not in vain. I'm thankful that there is a tomb that's proven empty. And there is a Lord that is reigning and ruling, seated at your right hand. This is good news today. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This supper is a meal for those that are united to Christ by faith. If you're not, if you're like, man, this was it's kind of an interesting talk. Um, that guy's kind of animated and um, whatever. He's a bonehead, whatever, whatever you might think. Whatever your thought is. If you're not united to Christ by faith, if you're not trusting that he is who he says he is, that he's done what he said he did, then this meal isn't for you. But if you are, this meal is for Ephraims. Any Ephraims? Any other Ephraims? I'm an Ephraim. This meal's for Ephraims. This meal is for Jacobs. This meal's for Abel's. Maybe dying too young. This meal is for Jephthah's, I already said him. This meal is for David's. This meal is for prodigals, too. Prodigals that may know exactly what it means to wallow in the mud, but know the joy of coming home to the celebrating Father. I hope as we distribute these elements this morning that you will enjoy, especially this morning, this good news that we're walking in, this good news of what it means to be united to Christ in faith. Let's distribute the elements.